The Digital Salon is a curation of listening experiences produced by the alumni and affiliated members of the Urban Humanities Initiative at UCLA. Even as urban space reinvents the enclosure, season two seeks out collectives situated in the city. If our first season asked how the pandemic is a portal, in our second we asked how, within such a time, can we gather? And what do we share? In this podcast that we call Collective, we tune into the knowledge that communal work transmits in polyvocal frequencies and interlocking scales. We're your hosts. I'm Gus Wendell. And I'm Jacqueline Barrios. And for our eighth episode, UHI alumni and PhD student of World Arts and Cultures and Dance at UCLA, Lily Flores Raigosa, and Roya Shanyon, master's student in architecture at UCLA, investigate the potential for collective knowledge production through the creation of a knowledge center in the UCLA School of Arts and Architecture. We at the Urban Humanities Initiative within the School of Arts and Architecture at UCLA acknowledge the Gabrielino Tongva peoples as the traditional caretakers of the land that is known as Tavangar, or the Los Angeles Basin and Southern Channel Islands. As a part of a land grant institution, we acknowledge that we cannot change the past, but our episode reflects desires to transform places in the urban space and more specifically, the university, to focus on the building of a better future for all. How can the built environment facilitate collective social movements towards anti-racism and equity on the university campus? What would a space like this sound like? It's loud. It's like real loud. Uh, people are yelling and we're laughing and we're joking. And <laughs> It'd be a place of many voices. The laughter, I think, is one of the things that is usually a good indicator of a space being welcoming and being put to use by young people in a way that they like. Also, for some reason, I don't know why I also just thought of like, like wind chimes and bells. Uh, I think part of that was me envisioning um, you know, relaxation or the idea, again, that the space can, you know, motivate the mind, but also be a, a place to seek refuge, right? Yeah. Um, well, if everyone would just close their eyes and envision <laughs> No, but honestly, um, Morgan and I have a little nickname for it. It's called um, Hot Mass because it's literally just <laughs> this massive... Um, in a sense, like stone, um, that's, that's kind of one of the, I guess, um, themes for our building of sorts, if you want to give it that. Um. Hello, my name is Lily, and I'm a PhD student in the World Arts and Cultures Dance Department, studying culture and performance. Also a urban humanities alumna. And I'm Roya, and I'm a graduate student in the Department of Architecture and Urban Design at UCLA. I met Lily through the Urban Humanities Initiative last year, where we were also exploring ideas about commoning in social space. So why are we talking about imagining a knowledge center at UCLA? 
Just to give a bit of background, UCLA has one center called the Academic Advancement Program that provides mentoring and research opportunities for students who come from backgrounds where they may have struggled economically, are first generation, and don't necessarily have the same advantages as other students due to systemic um, oppression and exclusionary practices. The building where AAP is housed is known as Campbell Hall. It's also a site where two activists who are part of the Black Panthers, Bunchy Carter and John Huggins, were slain in the 1960s through instigation from the FBI's COINTEL program. At approximately 2.45 p.m. this afternoon, two men were murdered at the UCLA campus. Their names are John Huggins, 23 years old, and Al Prentice Carter, 26 years old. They were attending a meeting. We had a chance to speak with Dr. Alice Ho, director of AAP and Dr. Carolina San Juan, who is the director of the Arts Initiative Program within AAP. And we got to speak about what they saw as vital to an inclusive, anti-racist, arts-based center at UCLA. My name is uh, Carolina San Juan. Um, I'm an alumnus of uh, the WACD program. I finished my uh, dissertation, my doctoral work uh, in 2010. This is AAP's 50th anniversary. So we've been around for a long time. Um, AAP started in uh, 1971. So we're at 50 years. I'm doing the math in my head as we're speaking. But um, so, I mean, it came out of like an era, right? It's like the late 60s. Um, There's a lot of EOP programs. And, you know, I think everyone's really familiar with what EOP is, Equal Opportunity Programs that are on many campuses. You know, I think we take a real focus on um, racial inequity, right? I think when people talk about diversity, they talk about all kinds of diversity. And while, I mean, of course, that's, you know, we get what diversity means, right, um, in terms of social justice, but I think that there's a real emphasis on equity, right, um, because of our roots, right? So, you know, there's, there's a movement uh, to change the name of, Carter, of uh, Campbell Hall to uh, Carter Huggins Hall because, you know, uh, AAP is known for the two Black Panthers who uh, members uh, who were founders of the party in Los Angeles, um, who were murdered in Campbell Hall. We're now looking at police brutality. We're now looking at inequities. We have this terrible pandemic, which is really affecting our communities more than others. And so um, we've gotten a lot of attention now that it's our 50th year. And I think the conversations are where they need to be, but we've been having that conversation. Right. Like I, I was really, you know, when I was asked to be on a subcommittee for the school's um, AEDI uh, commission, you know, it, it was like um, I was really happy to represent AAP and, and that work. Of course, you know, we always think about accessibility and how safe students feel uh, in, in spaces that are traditionally rarefied and um, have not really honored um, their practices, 
right? So, you know, it's like the big A, little A argument, right? And that, like, and and where do um, historically underrepresented artists fit within that, and how do we ensure that they're not um, consumed and exploited? I think there's the actuality of like bodies entering a space and feeling safe to relax their posture and to speak uh, very openly about uh, their experience and their reaction um, to work, you know, work that's either displayed or presented or um, I, I think a, a welcoming safe space would be great. Um, but I don't, I don't know what that looks like because there's so many signifiers, right? Like I love when you walk into AAP and it's a lot of like student made posters on the hallways. And I have colleagues who are not in, in AAP walk down and they're like, wow, this looks really student centered. And I'm like, yeah, because all the artwork on the walls is like construction paper, cut out letters, you know, we're like making things and sticking them on bulletin boards, um, which is very different from other spaces on campus. Um, you go to AAP and it's loud. It's like real loud. Uh, people are yelling and we're laughing and we're joking. And um, I see students' postures change when they walk through our doors, you know, and I, in the years that I've been at UCLA, um, I don't see that in other spaces. It's interesting that you raise that because I mean, I've had this conversation with other students too, because our students do traverse campus and they are present themselves in many different spaces, you know, and I think a lot about, um, you know, the, the student retention um, center and as well as, you know, the community programs office and the Bruin Resource Center and these other spaces that our students um, quite often are in as well. And, you know, one of the, the conversations that I think we've had and, and discussions we've had with them is like, sort of what makes a space? Is it the physical geographic location? Is it the people within it? You know, and, and, and back and forth. Um, and so there is this element there that I think has historically been there since even when I was an AAP student. Um, and there's still like this notion, right? Everybody calls AAP like the home away from home. And there's like that, that expectation of what that looks like and feels like when you step foot inside Campbell. And I think that it's pretty interesting, even within AAP, we have different niches. So like, you know, students might find their comfort if they um, are a peer mentor with CCP or with VIPs, then they might find those spaces to be their sub home, you know, like space within a larger uh, space, right? I call it their room, not just about having um, a critical mass, which is important, but there's something else about also the physical location or the history that's there or within the space or the behaviors and how you know one's posture is or how they act or what they feel comfortable doing or not doing in different spaces as well. I think the dream would be um, I don't know if they still have it but the Echo Park Film Center um, they have that bus that drives around that's full of like editing banks and they actually go into communities uh, because, you know, Echo Park's been so gentrified that the communities that they were accustomed to serving are like no longer in Echo Park, but they're still in Echo Park. So it's like, so they have like this bus that drives around um, 
you know, and I, and I say that because I think it's so important that we don't center the arts at UCLA. I think for many times, um, you know, I'm in South LA and there are murals and cars and nail salons and music and um, real expressions of, um, of this community's experience and thoughts and theories. Um, so I don't, you know, it, it's always that we have to bring the community to UCLA. So ideally, I think since UCLA has the resources that, you know, non-centralized small spaces, even mobile spaces, that is the move towards anti-racism, equity, diversity, and inclusion. My name is Louis Leva. I'm from Los Angeles, California, and I work as a visual arts coordinator at Heart of Los Angeles. Uh, for over 31 years, this organization has been providing after-school programming uh, in a variety of capacities to youth in the Westlake, MacArthur Park, Koreatown neighborhood. Uh, in the early 2000s, uh, I you know, had the great fortune of being a student here, and also my oldest sister was one of the original students uh, as well. So there is like a, a legacy component in terms of you know, being able to capture different generations that have benefited from the social, uh, academic, uh, overall nurturing components of an organization like this. Prior to the pandemic, Ola was uh, kind of functioning as like a satellite space. So twice a week, uh, your colleagues, my colleagues uh, through City Lab would uh, be here uh, kind of working out of the space and they were a great resource to bounce ideas off of in terms of programming for the youth. I had the great fortune of collaborating with them on a couple of projects, one which was uh, Banqueteando, so talking about streetscape, collecting narratives, uh, how sidewalks are being utilized in the area, I've been some more recently talking about design with the students, specifically looking at parks in the area, what their thoughts are, perceptions of safety. So it has been really interesting to be able to uh, build off of some of these ideas and hear from the students firsthand. One thing that I wanted to add is uh, my academic and professional background is actually in planning. So arts education didn't automatically seem like the most um, immediate fit in terms of being able to comprehend or build off of some of these projects, but it's also been really fun to be able to put on the planner hat when working with the students. And also, again, it has been a little bit more limited because of the pandemic, but some of our favorite types of projects have been like art in public space, which is also something that the department has done uh, beautifully in a variety of capacities. Actually, this weekend, we just had an activation on Parkview and uh, Wilshire in MacArthur Park, focusing on pedestrian safety with um, the Department of Transportation. So that was, you know, again, something really cool, um, being able to introduce the young people to taking ownership uh, over their neighborhood, their ideas on what it looks like now, what it could look like, the ways that it can improve or, um, you know, disturbances, uh, memories, these are all things that really think of that I think about uh, that I didn't have the language at this particular age that I really hope is giving them the competitive edge to be able to envision themselves. Um, maybe not necessarily at UCLA, but wherever life learning takes them, uh, hopefully to a place like UCLA, that would be the goal, but also recognizing that people have different uh, paths and trajectories to again, be able to claim space uh, to create community uh, 
to beautify, to be able to identify issues and, you know, utilize the critical thinking skills to plan solutions as well. I really appreciated this idea of the kind of intergenerational legacy that is carry, carried on at OLA and then how, you know, your background in planning has helped to um, support the, the youth in developing language to essentially, um, like you said, take claim to space and, and, and really build off of their narratives. And I think that's really powerful. And to also keep in mind that all of these things are related to social justice, which is what we're really passionate about and what we're trying to explore with the idea of like, what would a, an arts and social justice-based space at UCLA, you know, what would that look like and what would that sound like? How could a space like this on the UCLA campus best serve folks at part of Los Angeles. The design elements that I thought were just what I normally tend to gravitate to would be like high ceilings, lots of natural light. Um, a lot of the parallels that I made were just thinking about how you have a space that can fit multiple purposes and kind of flip it uh, to fit uh, the need and the overall space. I think, you know, being in the art studio in which we are, we have to adapt uh, the space that we do have to fit several needs, whether it's teaching, accommodating an art show, or things of that sort. So things like sliding walls, I thought would be cool, or like furniture that's relatively easy to be able to, you know, repurpose or refit. In terms of like the general aesthetic, I think, you know, asking young people for their input is always a great way to get the buy-in and excitement. Uh, but before we even get to the design elements, I you know, when I envision something like this, I think one of the biggest challenges to really think about is the transportation facet is in an, a utopian place where this is happening. How would we get the students to UCLA? And the reason why I say that is because again, like having grown up in the Koreatown neighborhood, I remember the first time I ever went to UCLA campus was when I was in ninth grade and we went on a field trip at school, but also, you know, being able to contrast that experience to a friend that I had that, the first time, you know, lived in LA his whole life. Uh, parents also from LA, the first time that he ever went to the UCLA campus was when he was getting ready to move into the dorms his freshman year. So again, navigating the idea that we live in, you know, one very large city, but the social realities of it are very, very different. And what Westwood looks like in comparison to our neighborhood here in MacArthur Park, Wilshire Boulevard being able to take us from Ola all the way to UCLA, uh, it's, you know, there's lots of areas for opportunity, but you definitely see how space and place is invested in some areas. And uh, also recognizing that this immediate area right now is transforming a lot of it due to recent investment, the buildings are becoming larger. A lot of the folks that are moving in are younger, uh, most white, but that's not exclusive. Uh, and have higher incomes than a lot of the families that we're living here, bringing it back to uh, generational honorings and passing downs. Like a lot of the students that we live with live in intergenerational households, right? So it's like uh, a lot of parents that are taking care of their children, grandparents in a lot of cases as well. A lot of times these are like, you know, five, six people in a one bedroom apartment, sometimes even a studio apartment. Um, so the idea of being in a space that is yours I think is something that really excites the students to be able to say like, wow, this is mine. This is a place where I feel welcome that I can influence. So again, having the malleability to be able to transform the center to kind of fit what their vision might be like 
Uh, in the immediacy, I don't know what that looks like, but that is an idea that does excite me. Um, in a variety of ways, UCLA does feel inaccessible. And I think part of the reasons why, if this were ever to happen, it would be really important is again, to be able to see yourself in a space, to envision yourself there makes you feel like a part of it. So again, reinforcing the culture that UCLA not only is the premier uh, public institution of learning and teaching, but also again, it's a beautiful public space that lots of folks have access to. Again, like I think the idea of, you know, a, a college campus and, you know, paralleling that to USC, which is in the immediacy a lot closer, like all of the gates, right? So someone might live in the neighborhood, but never know that they're allowed to walk onto the premise or also the incredible programmings and speakers that come to a lot of these spaces. Again, the way in which uh, cultural elitism works or also just uh, inability to access information. There are lots of programs that both institutions do that are available to the public that a lot of folks don't know about, right? So again, how are we able to build that um, connection where everyday working class folks and families like the ones that we work with where teenagers or even, you know, some of the kids that we've got to work with that have been as young as 11 uh, that have been able to partner with, uh, you know, our friends at City Lab to, again, be active players uh, in developing ideas of what change can look like in their own neighborhood. And I think, again, one of the things that I appreciate is uh, folks like you all asking this question because a lot of times younger people are accustomed to someone telling them what they should be looking for or what they should expect. So again, being able to imagine or reimagine space is really a gift. You brought up a lot of really critical points about how even just the way that the city is designed or how transportation um, is designed creates a border, right? There's this inaccessibility that is occurring. And I think Roy and I, because we've interrogated this idea of borders through the Urban Humanities Initiative, we thought by us being involved in the in this commission, you know, that we could start to really address how curriculum could start to break down those borders or allow us to analyze the historical components of how inequalities are perpetuated by these different bordering practices. And so in, in including the um, this kind of knowledge center that would support the um, investigation of social justice issues on the UCLA campus through an arts perspective is something that we're hoping to communicate to the wider UCLA communities. My name is Erin Cooney, and I am, uh, first of all, I got my MFA from uh, UCLA's Design Media Arts uh, Department here in the School of Arts and Architecture. And now I'm a visiting lecturer in DMA, Design Media Arts, and I'm also uh, the Associate Director of Counterforce Lab, which is run by Rebecca Mendez. And the Counterforce Lab uh, uses art and design to uh, reckon with environmental justice issues uh, in, in art and ecology. And this word counterforce, and it means collecting to become a force against um, these systems that are leading us to climate and environmental crisis and, and, and injustice, because again, they're implicitly tied. But another word that we use is to unlearn. So that, and this is ironic and paradoxical because we're at a university, which is about learning. But so much of this moment is about unlearning that we've implicitly learned but as participants within these systems. I feel like a knowledge center 
to be a place of many voices, right? Now, I'm coming from DMA, so technology is, is, is a big piece that we want to take into account. You know, we talk a lot about the more than human. So uh, that includes the natural world, that includes uh, botany and all these things, but it also includes, you know, technology, um, software, AI, those, those kinds of things. The more than human encompasses all of this. And, um, and so when I hear something, does that mean there's a touch screen somewhere and I am touching something and interacting with something that plays an oral interview of some kind or an oral archive? Or is there something else where I've just plugged into a performance where I get to hear music? Is there another where I am hearing an ecology, right? So like bird song or what's happening in a certain ecology. It can be so many things. You know, but it's 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 the recording and archiving and repository for for these different experiences, and some of them are performance based. Mm-hmm. It would sound vibrant. <laughs> I love this idea of like the haptic triggering sounds and movement triggering sounds. And then, of course, another thing that's important is a place to meet and to share and to listen. Um, so, is that an auditorium? Is that a round auditorium? Um, something like this, and something, again, that hooks up, uh, hooks it up to the outside world. So those who can't be there can still access what's going on. Not in a surveillance way, but in a way that's we're having this presentation, you know, just like we've done with Zoom, where you can open these things up for people who actually can't be there so that they can share in it. And so that people who can't be there can even ask questions and participate. You know, I think that's really important, too. What types of programming or activities would you imagine occurring in a UCLA anti-racism, equity and diversity and inclusive type of knowledge center focused Mm. on the arts? It needs to be centered on the local. So um, organizations that already exist here in Los Angeles. So, um, you know, for instance, at uh, Counterforce, we, one of our primary partners is OLA, which is Heart of Los Angeles. And they're an incredible program that is in near MacArthur Park. They're centered at Lafayette Park, near MacArthur Park. And they're an incredible program that has after-school programming for the community kids there. And it's, it's been in existence for several years. And they just do wonderful, wonderful things. They have a great arts program. And one thing I would love to do with them is is have a a bridge exchange where we go to them, they come to us, and we create programming. So whether that's, you know, um, Tony, Tony Brown, who runs OLA, he's he's, uh, voiced to me that what he would love to see is a program in which students from UCLA who might come from backgrounds of some of his kids come and and speak and, and talk about the pathways that they created and opening up ideas for pathways and and mentorship programs. So I think that could be fabulous. And then also giving students, because he's also voiced this, um, exposure to, to the university, right? Because for his kids who have not who have not had access to university, perhaps in, the, in their lives in the same way as others have, the university can appear um, an intimidating place. And that's another thing that, you know, if, if we're going to talk about ADI seriously, that's something we need to be conscious of and break down. We need to make UCLA welcoming. 
architecture professor Mohammed Sharif, also on the AEDI commission, adapted the idea of a knowledge center into a graduate studio course during the winter quarter. Students, of which I was one, were asked to design an AEDI center on the UCLA campus located in front of the Broad Art Center. Students worked in pairs to develop designs for buildings that would facilitate the exchange of ideas, collaboration, performances, and other events and activities related to advancing AEDI goals. Hello everyone, my name is Ronald Ozioku. I am a Mark I second year student um, at the Architecture and Urban Design program here at UCLA. And I'm Jordan Ray, uh, also a second year in Mark One student. You guys work together as a design team. So maybe talk a little bit about the motivations behind your design um, and how they relate to your overall ideas about AEDI at UCLA. Um, I, I think from the beginning, Jordan and I always wanted to create a space that was um, super transparent. I think that's one of the issues we find within the whole, I guess, like education system or just like any type of institutional system, um, the lack of, I guess, openness with the public or information that's given to certain people. And so for our building, we definitely wanted an open space, a transparent space. I think that was kind of one of our main driving design ambitions. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, pretty top of the list was that transparency, uh, as well as just having an understanding of what our department is even doing uh, around those issues and the school at large, and maybe some things being said, but having no idea about any of these things. And then also, I think decisions being made almost are counterintuitive to what they're publicly talking about. And so I, we were trying to think about a space that maybe particularly could, um, you know, lend itself to uh, not even a lot, uh, allowing that to be an option. And then thinking about uh, maybe existing spaces, like community spaces, that are maybe utilizing uh, space, you know, in these ways anyway, and they're not specifically designed for that. And so, uh, like, fluidity was another discussion that we talked about in, in addition to that, where, you know, maybe these uh, spaces could adapt to serve other functions. Yeah, and then I think that that started to translate not only formally in terms of like how there's um, space making and planning within the interior, but also exteriorly, um, where we kind of find um, a building that from afar you almost didn't know what was going on within. Um, it was very kind of, uh, how do you call it? <laughs> um, very like combative in the sense like it did not fit within the context of the the campus at large. Um, but then as you approach, there started to be moments where it would start to reveal itself to you um, in terms of its materiality, um, being that you can start seeing it, but then also with the addition of like having these, what we were calling fissures within the, the exterior of the building to where you can really get glimpses within. Um, and that kind of helped add to the dialogue of um, kind of confronting kind of issues within AEDI and how it can be discomforting. But um, you kind of just have to like take those types of things on um, and have those conversations.
Would you guys mind just um, describing the physical characteristics of your building? Like, as if, you know, in the podcast, we obviously can't see it. So give us a audio visual, I guess. <laughs> Morgan and I have a little nickname for it. It's called um, Hot Mass because it's literally just <laughs> this massive, um, in a sense, like stone. Um, that's that's kind of one of the, I guess, um, themes for our building of sorts, if you want to give it that. Um, so it's kind of like this really large mass that we started to um, cut away at through the site uh, context of, um, you know, the pathways, adjacent buildings, um, visual access, um, and then we have those uh, fissures, as we're calling it, these cracks that start to um, reveal itself and create these scenes um, and visual access points. Materiality-wise, it was um, a perforated, a perforated metal, and um, that was in part to give the stone look from afar, but as you approach, obviously you can start to see it within the perforated metal, um, and then at night or in the evening time, the building starts to kind of like glow and highlight. It's like a beacon almost for the campus. And so I think that, yeah, these sort of cracks and fissures that reveal themselves as you get closer to the structure kind of lent itself to uh, the sort of maybe fragility uh, of the space, you know, or the, or the potential vulnerability that we're kind of hoping for uh, when starting to tackle, you know, the proposed program. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so essentially it looks kind of uh, ominous from afar and it starts to reveal itself and then essentially you cross the threshold and there's a lot of glazing, a lot of natural light. Um, and it's really open and terrace is back on the interior. Uh, and there's really no enclosed spaces. Uh, there's partitions and suggestions of space and the black box theater is enclosed. Uh, but even within that, you can kind of um, uh, have access to it, visual access to it. Jordan and I had a lot of conversations. I think a lot of stuff we, I feel like we had to keep, we had to have, like, kept asking ourselves if, like, we're losing sight of certain things or uh, if certain things are just really getting lost, but then trying to figure out other things. And um, I think we, we, we maintained those, like, core goals or values we wanted, and we just tried to you know, keep pushing the design to fit those um, as best we could. One of the huge challenges that we all have as architecture students is that there's so many constraints around the site or like even building code or whatever. Um, but also just like, you know, we have these amazing sort of philosophical discussions about what AEDI should be and what it should look like at the university. How do you feel like um, at the end of the day, your project um, achieve those and what were what were or what are the limitations of architecture the limitations of design for the project we're essentially asked to uh, maybe solve political problems with technical solutions you know and does a space that's specifically designed for that uh, can it succeed if it's not supported uh, I suppose by maybe more uh, specific decisions on, let's say, you know, uh, within administration 
you know, level, like, you know, the students can have these discussions, um, you know, in this amazing space created specifically for uh, these sorts of conversations and transparency. But, uh, you know, if it's not kind of met with um, support, you know, from maybe the, the institution on a specific level, uh, maybe this space wouldn't be terribly successful. Yeah, I think an interesting aspect of this studio was that there's not really a, a precedent for a building type like this. And then the the program was kind of flexible. Were there any other programmatic ideas that you felt were unique or important to your priorities? Yeah, I was going to, uh, I think Jordan and I kind of had two like two ways in which we can go about programming. Um we can either like upsource and close then make them like distinct um spaces or formal spaces. Um will there be some type of connectivity that was something we need to talk about. But I think we mostly decided that if we're talking about um being inclusive the best way to do that is through like an open plan concept. And so um, a lot of the program is open plan. And even like, for instance, the um, the collab rooms are, yes, there's separate spaces. They're partition walls, but they're not enclosed on all four sides. Yeah, those collab spaces were fun because you could almost uh, utilize that space from three areas, if not more. You know, if you're in the sort of area that maybe has a couple partitions, so if there's an activity happening in there and you're on the floor above using one of the desk spaces, you can still look down into that space and hear that conversation. Or you could even be outside the space in, like, a more common area uh, and still, like, have visual access and hopefully, uh, you know, you could still hear a conversation being had or participate maybe in maybe an activity that's happening in there. I think kind of tied into the flexibility of spaces. Like we could, we were hoping that those areas could be used for other programmatic, you know, um, concerns like the gallery could, could function as a collab space if we wanted it to. Or, yeah. And I, and I think that dealt with too, with like trusting the cohort or student body or whomever to define that space for themselves. As a collective of educators, artists, architects, designers, connecting diverse academic backgrounds into our work, we bring ideas about equity and inclusion beyond academia into our practices. We wonder how we continue these conversations to transform our worlds outside of the university. We acknowledge that even though we have engaged in conversations and design studios, there's still no shovel in the ground. So how do we enact social change through collectivities of people and spatial design? We realize that with support and buy-in from administrators, diverse ways of creating knowledge in decentralized environments from the university can be sustained with various collaborators that challenge social inequities while moving towards social justice. Through collective organizing and debate, we can continue momentum at the university locality as well as the urban. 
lest we forget the layered histories and whose land we reside on. Thank you to our collaborators, Alice, Ronald, Carolina, Aaron Jordan, Louis, and thanks to Jason Walchuk for helping with editing. And special thank you to the Urban Humanities for the support on this podcast episode. Tune in next week for the next episode of the Digital Salon Podcast, The Collective. To discover the archive behind this episode, visit our website, digitalsalonpodcast.org. It's so sweet. It's so sweet. It's so sweet. It's so sweet.